This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. You may be seated. Uh, this week we start a two-week mini-series on money. This week we're talking about the dangers of money. Next week Father Matt will preach about the opportunity of money. Uh, we're not in a capital campaign right now, so we're not trying to raise money for a specific project, which means there'll be no pledge or no formal ask at the end of this uh, but because Jesus taught a lot about money and the Bible has a lot to say about money, then regardless of whether we're in a capital campaign or not, it's something that we want to be regularly teaching into as a matter of discipleship. What does the Bible say about money? As followers of Jesus, what should be our heart attitude, our disposition toward money? What does the Bible say versus what does the world around us say? I have a friend named Paula who is a pastor in Kenya. We knew each other from a few years back when we worked at a camp in the north woods of Wisconsin for a summer together. Now, Paula grew up in the slums of Nairobi. He was very poor, his family. And as I got to know him more, I heard stories, and at one point he told me that there were times that he would go to bed, he and his siblings, his family, without having eaten that day. No food that day, they went to bed hungry. And I said, Paula, that must have been so hard, and even more so for your faith. Did that not shake your faith because God said He would always take care of us and provide for our needs? And I'll never forget what Paula said. A person can go a day without eating food. It's not the end of the world. It's not comfortable. Often I would go to sleep feeling that discomfort, and yet, he said, I learned lessons in those days that I'll never forget. Furthermore, he said, on those nights when we went without food, my mother would gather us together and we would pray desperately for food tomorrow, and we never went two days without food. I said, wow, okay, I'm going to remember that. So when Paul says in verse 8, of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, when Paul says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. My friend Paula would say, yeah, yeah. If we have what we need, it is always enough. And if God is your Father, you will always have what you need. So if you go ahead and open to 1 Timothy chapter 6 in your Bible, or if you didn't bring your Bible, there's one under a chair near you. In 1 Timothy 6, uh, Paul is contrasting contentment with the desire to be rich and the love of money. And as oftentimes is the case in the Bible, there's a warning that cuts one way, but then there's also an invitation that cuts the other way. And so the warning is like when Jesus said in Luke 12, be on your guard against all greed and covetousness. For life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So Jesus is teaching us and Paul is telling us that there's a temptation towards coveting, towards wanting things that we do not have, and we have to be guard, guarded against this temptation. That's the warning. And if we don't heed this warning, it's perilous. But the other side is an invitation, an invitation to contentment, peace, not worrying about money and a generosity that's based not on guilt or shame, but on the confidence that our good and loving Father in heaven is faithful and will give us what we need so we can give to others. So let's go to the text there in 1 Timothy 6. Now, we started reading in the middle of the paragraph in verse 6, 
Let me tell you a little bit what came before it. So he's wrapping up the letter. This is a letter Paul's writing to a younger pastor in training, Timothy. And in this section, he's saying, watch out. There are all kinds of teachers roaming around. Some of them are false teachers. And they will cause dissension and division in the body of Christ. Not only will they bring false teaching, but they'll also be trying to amass leader or followers after themselves and gain influence over others. They'll be jockeying for position, king of the hill. And finally, if you look at the end of verse 5, they will exploit the people of God for money because they believe that godliness or being in the God business is a means for gain. Now, this was a real problem in early Christianity. Uh, Paul also addresses this deeply in 2 Corinthians 11, where he talks about in Corinth, there were these super apostles. They were really impressive, and it made the people of Corinth think, oh, Paul is not so impressive. And these super apostles were exacting money from the Corinthians, and, and Paul was saying, this is why I preach the gospel to you without charge in Corinth, to distinguish myself from those who were exploiting you by the preaching of the gospel. So similarly, in Timothy's context, Paul is saying, yeah, watch out for those roaming false prophets. This was a problem that didn't seem to go away because one of the first writings that we have outside of the New Testament is something called the Didache. Uh, and I find this a somewhat humorous example. But in the Didache, there's also really practical instruction where it says, if a, a traveling prophet or apostle comes to you and wants to spend the night, greet him as if he were the Lord. And if he asks to stay two nights, run him out of town on a rail. He's a false prophet. If he asks for bread, give him bread. If he asks for money, run him out of town on the rail. He's a false prophet. So there were people roaming around seeking to exploit and take advantage of the people of God, teaching, but really just as a way to, to get gain. And Paul says, no, godliness is not a means of gain. Then verse 6, but godliness with contentment, that is contentment about my financial status, that kind of godliness is great gain, not a material gain, not of money, not a financial gain, but he's saying a spiritual gain. And so then he pivots at this point, and then the rest of the paragraph, verses 7 through 10, he says, well, I'm going to take this opportunity now to teach all of you and all of us what should be the Christian disposition towards money. So picking up now in verse 7, for we brought nothing in the world and we'll take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So today we're going to contrast what is this desire to be rich, this love of money, this covetousness, contrasted with contentment. So going back to verse 9 and 10 here, we see these phrases, the desire to be rich or the love of money. And perhaps for you, like it is for me, those phrases don't immediately grab me. Instead, I, I kind of have a disconnect and I say, well, that's not me. I know I'm not rich and I'm never going to be rich, so I don't have the desire to be rich. I don't really love money. And I think that's a common response for many of us. Well, I'm not rich. I don't desire to be rich. So what we're going to do for today is we're actually going to modify this phrase a little bit and move from the desire to be rich to simply the desire for more money. Because I think many of us would say, yeah, I don't want to be rich, but 
It'd be nice to have a little more money. Well, I don't, I don't love money, but I'd love having a little more of it. Why is the love of money so dangerous? Well, because we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in this relationship with God, it's to God that we're to go for security and when we're in trouble. That's part of what the love of God means. I love you, I go to you for security and when I need help. So if something happens in your life and you're facing some kind of trouble, if your first instinct or your primary instinct is to think, okay, I, I need money for my security or money is what's gonna help solve this problem or get me out of this, and you're either thinking a lot about the money you have or you're thinking a lot about the money you don't have and that that's what you need, now all of a sudden you're engaging in the love of money because you're loving money as you should only love God. You're looking to money, which you should only to look to God to for security and help when you're in trouble. God alone is our security. God alone is our help in trouble. Oftentimes, he'll send us money as a means to help us. But let's not confuse that with the source of our security and our help. And this desire for more, Maybe not the desire to be rich, but this desire for more, this is something that we all experience. So have you ever had this thought? I'd really love to have a bigger house. I don't need a mansion, but maybe just a few hundred extra square feet. Or I'd love to have a nicer car or nicer clothes or go to nicer restaurants and that more often. Is there a certain possession that you have your eye on, but you can't currently afford, and it's stealing your peace, your discontent, until you have it. Or here's one that I'm sure every single one of us has thought at some point or another, I wish I had a slightly bigger income, just a little bit, just maybe 5 or 10K more a year. That would really help. Maybe that would mean we could actually put our kids in private school or, or actually save up and, and do something substantial for them for college. Maybe then I could get that nice new kitchen countertop or buy the place up north. Now hear me on this. It's really important. There's nothing inherently wrong with nicer clothes, private school, going to college, a place up north, a new kitchen countertop. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things if you can afford them, and if in purchasing them, your desire is to steward them, to use them for the glory of God and to share them with others, then it can be a wonderful gift to you and those you love. But it can be a problem when you have your eye on those things and you can't afford them, and you either try to and get in trouble, or you just can't, and so you sit there and you think about it a lot. You crave that thing that you don't have. If I had, or if we had just a little bit more, then we could have that thing. And then life would be swell. So you know it's a problem if it steals your peace, if you cannot be content without this thing. So does anything come to mind for you this morning? I mean, something particular? Is there something in your life right now, something you wish you had, you desire, but you, you don't currently have it, and it's stealing your peace? Can you think of something? Hold it before you as we go throughout the rest of this sermon. 
You know, for Julie and I, we had a, a hailstorm hit back in May, and the insurance company came out and said, yeah, we're going to give you a lot of money, new roof and, and some painting maybe. And so they came, and the new roof is on. Awesome. And then in the course of this, we, we thought, hey, maybe this money is going to cover the, the whole exterior paint job for our house. We'll get a, a new paint job too. And then in recent weeks, it's become unclear, well, are they going to pay for the whole house or just part of it? And all of a sudden, we're wrestling with anxiety about, will they say yes or will they say no? We have all this anxiety about something that six months ago, we didn't even know was a possibility. But now all of a sudden, it's a right that we demand. And if it doesn't happen, we're going to get angry and get all bothered up about it. So for us, the test is, all right, if the answer comes back and say, no, we're just going to cover part of the house, no new paint job. Will Julie and I be able to be content with that? And you know how it goes, right? We, we, we already have a new roof, but what am I thinking more about? The paint job that hasn't been done yet than saying, hey, we got a new roof. That was unexpected. So this desire for more, it's like a seed that if it grows, becomes the desire to be rich. That's why we have to be careful. Because we might say, yeah, I... Huh, I don't have the, I'm not greedy. I don't have the desire to be rich. But if you've got that seed of, oh, I wish I had just a little bit more money, that seed left alone will grow and it'll become a full-grown weed, a greed weed, a greed weed from the seed of false need. Yeah. Eugene Peterson said that sermons should be poetic. I'm pretty sure that's what he's talking about. Yeah. These warnings from the gospel and from the epistle, from Paul's letter to Timothy, these warnings against uh, coveting, they, they tap into one of the Ten Commandments. The last one, oftentimes forgot, last and least, thou shalt not covet. Don't be greedy. Be content with what you have. Don't want what you don't have. And did you notice in our gospel story that when Jesus is talking with the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, well, you know the commandments, and then he lists a few. Honor your father and mother, adultery, murder, not doing those things, lying, stealing. He names commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, and conspicuously doesn't name commandment number 10. He doesn't name it because that's actually the commandment that the rich young ruler is breaking. He's greedy. He's coveting. He's too tied to his possessions. Also, Jesus did not mention the first commandment, which is love nothing more than God. And clearly, the rich young man had made a God out of his money and his possessions, which is why Jesus said, one thing you still lack. There's actually one commandment that you're not obeying. In verse 10, Paul says, look at it with me, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, meaning from this root come up other really nasty things. And just think about it. It makes sense. Someone who's totally given over to the love of money, the pursuit of money, from that will come lying and stealing and neglecting your family in pursuit of more gain. In extreme cases, it leads to murder, betrayal, and at the end of it all, loneliness and a hard these are the pangs that Paul says they've pierced themselves with, not to mention, not least of which, is they've lost their faith. Look again, verse 10. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. So Jesus is saying to the rich young man, sell your possessions and keep God. Don't sell God in order to keep your possessions. 
And so while we might say, yeah, I, I don't really want to be rich, even the seed of that desire, that desire, oh, I'd love to have just a little bit more, we have to keep watch on that because it's perilous. Not to mention the desire for more money and the pursuit of more money doesn't actually solve any problems, generally. People who have lots of money are still just as worried, if not more worried, than other people about money. So it's not even working. But we often think, more money, that's the answer. That's what I need, that's what we need, more money. But more money is never the answer. That's a temptation and a lie. The key word here is more. In this context, more is an evil word. It's a tricksy word. It's a burdening word. So imagine that you got a bill for $745. The exhaust on your Chevy uh, S10, 1989 Chevy S10 just went out, and so this week you've been smacked with a bill for $745. You might say, I need $745. That statement is both true and, biblically, thumbs up. It's good to say, I have a need. My need is $745. What is unacceptable, what's not good, thumbs down, is to say, man, I just got hit with this bill. I'm feeling a little nervous. What I need right now is more money. I just need more money. I need $745, thumbs up. I just need more money. Not good. And you might say, what's the difference? The difference is huge. Because $745 is only and ever going to be $745. Whereas more is going to become more. Once you pay that bill, that $745, it's in the rearview mirror. Whereas the desire for more and this feeling of, I think what I need is I just need more money, that will never go away. And that will haunt you and burden you. God loves you. He loves you too much to let money be your master. He knows that money is a terrible master. And the generic feeling of more money, that's the answer. That's never the answer. Now, a quick word to those who your work is commission-based, not salary or perhaps you work for yourself. Um, that's not my case. I, I have a salary, but I can just look at that and say, wow, that would be really, really hard to guard against this temptation. How easy would it be to say, oh, you know what, just one more hour and I could have, hmm. Or maybe I'll just do a little bit of work on Sunday or whatever is your day of rest, which is to be holy to the Lord and set apart. So I'll just do a little bit of work because I can make just a little bit more. So in your situation, you have to be extra careful and guarded against that temptation to have just a little bit more. Now, qualification here, important at this point. There is a time and a season for desiring more. And that is when more is genuinely needed. When there's a genuine need for more, it would make sense that you would desire more. So I'll give you an example so that we can wrap our heads around this. Okay, if your family is growing and you need a bigger space to live in, maybe you move out of the apartment, time to buy a house, or you need to buy a bigger house. Well, you genuinely need that. You need more space for your family. And so to need or to desire more space is not a bad thing in that season. And so what you do is you go on Zillow and you look at Redfin and you're looking around all the houses and, and you're dreaming and you're desiring and you're writing your list and hopefully you're praying, right? Because you're asking God to give you what you need. And yes, sometimes he gives us over and abundantly what we need because he's a good and loving father and he sometimes just wants to show and display his extravagance. But we want to start, our cornerstone is by saying, okay, but what's our need? So we pray, what's our need? Give us what we need. 
Hopefully you're praying in this situation, and you're also desiring and wanting a bigger place. Not bad, all right, but does it have a hold on you? Does it consume you? Will you still be content if you don't get the house that you have your eye on? And here's one for you. After you've bought a house, are you still going on Zillow? Because there's no reason for you to go on Zillow anymore. You're helping out a friend. Okay, help out your friend. But if you're going on Zillow and you're thinking, oh, maybe I would, that, that is what we're talking about right now. It's covetousness. And it eats away at your soul and your time. So this is why Jesus gives strong warning in the gospel passage. Those who have wealth, it's harder for them to enter the kingdom than a camel going through the eye of a needle. Those are strong words, Paul's words here in Timothy, because they know that the gravitational force of the desire for more pulls us down to this world and a worldly way of thinking, a worldly way of living, dreaming, and wanting. And if we're not careful, we'll lose sight of what really matters. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the things that are seen, the things that you can desire more of, those are passing away. And in time, they will be shadows and dust. But the reality is that what you cannot see, that is what is more real. And that's, God is saying, that's what I want you to focus on. That's why I'm going to give you what you need so that you can not worry about your needs and focus on the things that really matter, the world that is unseen. And so to keep us in that eternal perspective, look again at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world. Naked we come in. We cannot take anything out of it. Naked we depart with no possessions, no money saved up. It all stays behind. And so for us, there, there is meant to be a certain level of detachment from material possessions. So that really famous verse where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We love that verse. It's a great verse. But do you know the context? He's saying, boy, I've, I've had seasons where I've been really low. I've had not a lot. I've had seasons where I've had abundance. And so whether in abundance or in great need, I know what it means to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's contentment. Or that prayer in Proverbs 30 where, where the wise man says, Lord, give me neither riches nor poverty, but only my daily bread. So in other words, the attitude that we're to have regarding money and the emotional attachment we have to money is roughly equivalent to your attitude and emotional attachment to your dental floss. Okay? Great. It's, it's useful. It's helpful. I use it sometimes. <laughs> but when I'm not using it, I'm not thinking about it. And I certainly don't spend my time thinking about what I would do if I had more dental floss. And that is exactly how we are supposed to think about money. Yeah, it's great. It's helpful at times. You, you gotta, we live in the world that you, requires you to work with money. But when I'm not using it, I'm not thinking about it. And I'm not thinking about what would happen if I had more. You see, this contentment is so important because it says everything about who you say your Father in heaven is. And if you want to know the secret sauce of Christian contentment, here it is. It's that my Father tells me what I need. And it's my Father who gives me what, my, what I need. So of all the other voices around telling us what we need, no, no it's my Father who tells me what I need, not these other voices. And my Father gives me what I need. Look again at verse 8. If we have food and clothing, 
With these, we will be content. So he's defining for us true need. But there are so many voices around us. Sometimes the issue for us is we need to get back to God's definition of what is need. It's a very basic need of our our survival. That's what he's promising. And again, what I said before is true. Oftentimes, he'll give us things that we want and desire way beyond what we need because that's his heart. He's an abundant, loving father. Sometimes he'll withhold those things because he knows your soul and he knows it wouldn't be good for you if he just gave you what you wanted in that moment. So we trust him with our wants and our desires. But where we can go to the bank is on those things that we truly need because he says, you will have what you need. Paula stands today with us in spirit and declares, this is true. You will have what you need. But these other voices, they tell us, well, actually, you know, to be someone of worth and value, you need to go to college. You need to buy a home by such and such an age. It needs to be such and such a size. You need to be able to go on these kinds of vacations and wear these kinds of clothes and eat at that new upscale Vietnamese Mexican fusion restaurant in the West Loop which I don't know if there is one. I'm making that up, but I'm assuming it's probably there. These voices that say, you need that iPhone. Look again at verse 8. If we have food and clothing and our iPhones, with these we will be... Wait a minute, that's not what it says. Uh, They actually did a, a study recently. They had 10 grown adults, and they took their iPhones from them for seven days. Eight of them died of cardiac arrest. Okay. No, that didn't happen because you don't need your iPhone to survive. Verse 7 and 8, For we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And at the end of the ages, when the angels of God return to sort out the wicked from the righteous, at that time it will not matter whether you went to college or not. It will not matter whether you ever owned a home. It will matter very much if you were generous and open-handed and shared, especially to the poor. So here's the big question. As we come to the end here, ask yourself this question. It probably won't take you very long to know the answer. Ask yourself the question, do I feel that I have enough? Do I believe I have enough money? Ask yourself. Or is it the case that sometimes, or maybe oftentimes, I find myself feeling, no, I I don't have enough. I don't have what I need. That's the big question. Do you believe that you have everything you need? So God's promise to us is that we would always have what we need, and his intention is that our answer to this question would always be yes. Yes, I, I have what I need. I am content. I'm content with what I make. I'm content with what I have. I'm content with what I don't have. That's his intention. Now, if you answered no, you're in good company because that's pretty much every single one of us. From time to time, we wrestle with this, I feel like I need more than I have. I can't say that, yes, I feel that I have everything I need. So if, or I should say, when your answer is no, I I don't feel like I have everything I need, it's not time to feel guilt and shame. It's time to just ask some really practical questions. So let's do some digging here. If the answer is no, the first question you should ask yourself is, well, am I asking God for what I need? It may be that you have a need, and it's not yet provided, but you're not asking for it, and God is saying, ask, let me prove my faithfulness to you. And it's time for you 
What you need to change is simply just start asking, start praying, asking for the things you need. Ask together with your family, with those who love and know you. Ask. Let him prove his faithfulness. James says you do not have because you do not ask. So the first question could be really simple. Am I asking for these things? Am I naming them specifically? Second question we need to ask ourselves. Is there something that needs to change with our lifestyle? Rather than living within or below our means, are we living above our means? Are we buying things or am I buying things I can't really afford? Am I taking risks or are we taking risks financially that are not kingdom risks? There's plain old risks that are leading to financial stress. If you're doing that, give to God your desires. What is it that you're going after? Let him clear that up and purify those. Repent of discontent and, and wishful thinking and the desire for more. But then also, you've got to change your spending habits to live within your means. So it, just as a quick example, again, with buying homes. If you're thinking of starting a family and it, currently you're both working, a good way to live within your means is to say, well, let's actually buy a home that we could afford on one income rather than assume we're both going to keep working and buy a home on two incomes and then get locked into two-income mortgage when maybe that baby comes and we think, oh, I, I don't think we both want to be working right now. That's an example of living within your means. It's that kind of thinking that perhaps the reason that you're feeling, I don't have what I need, is there needs to be an adjustment there on lifestyle and your level that you're seeking to live at. Or maybe you're unmarried and you're thinking of buying a place but you're assuming, oh, I'm going to get a raise soon, it's going to be big, or I'm going to get a new job probably at some point in the next five years, and, and it'll be a big pay bump. No. Buy with what you have in your budget now. That's the principle of living within your means. This applies across all the different areas of your budget. Okay, third question you can ask yourself. If your answer is, ah, no, I, I don't feel like I have what I need. Okay, then third question, do you need to reframe need? Who is telling you what you need? Are your expectations about your need aligned with God's promises, or are they aligned more with your own plans? Again, give to God your desires, your plans. Let Him purify. Repent of the desire for more of discontent and learn that secret sauce of Christian contentment. My Father, He's the one that tells me what I need, and my Father gives me what I need. Last question. If your answer is, no, I, I don't feel that I have everything I need, it could be an issue with a lack of generosity, a lack of generosity that comes from a covetousness or a greed, a desire for more, or the fear of lack. All of these things are connected. And what this amounts to, then, is a lack of generosity. When we hold too tight to our money, that's when we know our money has too tight a hold on us. Conversely, when we're free with our money, we know we are free from our money and the desire for more of it. So are you open-handed? Do you give generously? You know that your desire for a new kitchen countertop is wholesome, good, and pleasing to the Lord when it does not impair your generosity. But when your desire for that new kitchen countertop or whatever else ever causes a thought, oh, well, but if I give now, then I can't the new countertop, that's when you're in trouble and you're beginning to succumb to the desire for more. Rather than saying, Lord, if you want us to have a new countertop, we'll get that in time. I'll wait patiently. 
So generosity. We'll say more um, in other sermons and in a seminar that we'll give about practical giving, but just to say a quick word on, on what we teach here at Resurrection. We do teach the tithe, which is an Old Testament precedent, but one that the New Testament never overturns or, or modifies. And so for many Christians and here at Resurrection, we call our members to give 10%, the first fruits, the tithe of what you give back to the church. We say that's biblical practice. And by doing that, you're guarding against covetousness, desire to be rich, desire for more. If you're not quite at 10%, we encourage you to start where you're at, and then every six months or 12 months, just increase it a percent. And then above 10%, many practice in order, again, just to stave off that desire to be rich or that desire for more, many practice generosity beyond the 10%, giving to kingdom mission. And then third way of giving that I think is really important is spontaneous generosity. Someone in your life has a need. Are you able to respond open-handedly? That says a lot about where your heart is. Because there may be people who tithe really faithfully, but if you're never spontaneously generous, that's saying something about your heart. And there's actually a tightness for, there, for you there. So generosity, giving, money, sharing our things. I'll conclude by saying there's only one more that is good for our soul, and it's more of you, Lord Jesus. You are all I need, more of you. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.